Good evening. Our numbers are dwindling. <laughs> All right. The kids have headed off to their classes. So we'll get started this evening as we're still in the book of Titus in your Bibles, if you want to turn there in the, in the New Testament, right after 2 Timothy, the book of Titus. And tonight we'll be starting in on chapter 2. Um, we've come to a bit of a transition point in Paul's letter to Titus, and we've gone from his instruction about what biblical eldership is and what the elders must be able to do, which is to teach sound doctrine and to refute or rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, it's gone from that to why, why they must be able to do that. Uh, and it's because of, as Paul wrote here to Titus, the insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers uh, they were plaguing the church, um, including and especially, he said, those of the circumcision party, the, the Judaizers, who were there, he said, they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And the elders needed to silence those voices. Then it moved on to the goal in the rebuke. I made a point of touching on that last, last time because we see it in the text. Uh, that there's, it's not just a rebuke for the sake of rebuking, but that there would be a change. Um, and so he talked about that to the, the goal of the rebuke, which is to cause those deceivers to be sound in the faith. And it's to bring them either back to soundness or to soundness for the first time. But there is, again, the goal is that they would be uh, ultimately, they would be saved, that they would be teaching what is right, believing what is right. And if they refuse, Paul says they're detestable, they're disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And this brings us to the transition that I mentioned uh, a little bit ago. Not a transition away from this subject overall, but from the focus of the subject, where the focus had been... Um, what to do about those deceivers, and now it's transitioning to what Titus and the elders are to do regarding those who are in the faith. Okay, so this is more of a, more of a positive sense here that we're, we're transitioning to. Um, so here in this next section in chapter 2, it's not that we'll be getting into large quantities of um, biblical doctrine, but practical instruction for Christian living, for what Christian character should be and what that Christian character is measured against. Um, and Paul does this by addressing five different groups of people, or six if you include Titus himself in this, uh, which, which we'll see as we work through this. Those groups are laid out in this passage of Scripture in the following order. Teaching for the older men, which you see in verse 2, Teaching for the older women, which you see in verses 3 through 5, really. And teaching for uh, young women, verses 4 and 5. Teaching for younger men, verse 6. And this is where I say it, it includes Titus. It's teaching for Titus in verses 7 and 8. There's kind of a personal um, exhortation there. And then teaching for bond servants in verses 9 and 10. And then we'll see how... At the end, whether we get through all this tonight or not, I'm not sure, but we'll see how at the end of this section of Scripture uh, that we're shown how all of this relates to how Christians can either bring discredit to God in the eyes of others or shine a light on the goodness of God's Word and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's start by reading out this passage of Scripture in chapter 2 of Titus. We'll go verses 1 through 10. And then we'll pray. Titus 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urged the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the opportunity to come and open your word. For the opportunity we had to, to sing to you tonight, to sing praises, to sing the truth that you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, we see even in those words a picture of your triune nature. Um, we're so grateful for your glory and your majesty, and we want that to be elevated in our own minds and in in the eyes of those who would see us living our Christian lives. And so we thank you for your word that teaches us about Christian character, that um, helps us to understand um, how you would have us to live. And Lord, may we be uh, empowered to do so by your Holy Spirit, because without you uh, giving us the ability and the desire, Lord, we would have neither. Uh, so we are so grateful. We are truly grateful for your intervention in our lives um, and thank you that you have done it in the most kind and perfect way that it could ever be done thank you for our savior for your grace and mercy that is found through him through his death and his burial and his resurrection we we'll praise you for it in jesus name amen all right so looking at, um, as we just read out uh, Titus 2, verses 1 through 10, looking at that first verse, we can see uh, Paul's focus is on um, Titus and what he is required to do in service to Christ. And Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, remembering that he had just finished this call for a sharp rebuke of false doctrine and those who traffic in it, right? So then we can understand the transition in the words, but as for you, okay? There's, he's contrasting those two things. Here's what you are to do instead, Titus. You teach differently. And I think by implication, the, the elders that Titus will appoint in all the churches um, are in view here. Uh, not not just Titus, but he's also Paul has just also just finished telling him about appointing elders in all the churches and what they should be like. So this isn't exclusive to Titus. So so the, this brings up a question then, and what Paul is telling Titus to do, and the question is, what does Paul identify as you look at this text in in verse one? What does Paul identify in verse one as the way that Titus is teaching will be different than the deceivers? How will it be different? Don't all speak at once. Everybody, take, wait, take a turn. <laughs> okay. What does Paul identify in verse 1 as the way Titus' teaching will be different than the deceivers that he's just finished talking about? Okay, there it is. By teaching what accords with sound doctrine, right? It is sound doctrine teaching. That's the big difference between what the false teachers are doing and what Titus is 
told to do. Okay, and the the difference they're both teaching. They're both teaching something, but Titus is told that it his teaching must be sound. It must be in accordance with sound doctrine. And the word Paul used here really means to speak. Uh, but some translations have it as teach. And if you think about it, that's what. That's what the pastor is doing when he speaks, right? He is, he is teaching. He's speaking, proclaiming the word of God. He's teaching what it says. And that is the implication of this word. And the, the question is, what is being spoken? What is being taught? And that's where the, the problem has been on the island of Crete and, and that, that Paul is trying to address here uh, with Timothy. Or, I'm not sorry, Titus. They should have names that start with different letters. Uh, Paul gives the rule for what is to be taught. And he tells Titus what the teaching is to be measured by, and that is sound doctrine. And Titus and the elders are only to teach what is sound. And later at the end of our text in verse 10, he calls this the doctrine of our God and Savior. Okay? So what is taught must accord with that. What is taught by Titus, what is taught by the elders, what is taught by Christians who are teachers must accord with that, with the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, the teaching must be fitted to that. It must go along with sound doctrine. It must be consistent with sound doctrine, not deviating from it. And the implication here is that Titus has already received this sound teaching from Paul. He, he's already, he already has it. He's already been taught. He's known Paul for a long time, as we talked about at the beginning of this study. Um, he's, he has sat under Paul's teaching for a long time. Uh, he knows what Paul means when he says sound doctrine. Okay, so Paul doesn't have to specify it here. He doesn't have to specify all the different sound doctrines that he's talking about because Titus is already, did I say Timothy earlier? Okay, good. Just holler at me if I, if I say Timothy again. Um, what he does is to give Titus examples. Examples for the, the people of what accords with sound doctrine. What characteristics that Christians possess that match up with what the word of God teaches. And again, the idea of something being Sound is that which is wholesome. It gives spiritual life and health to the one receiving it and applying it. Okay, it is it's truth, not lies. It is it corrects sin and doesn't coddle sin. Uh, it points man to God and not man to himself. The word of God is the definition of soundness. It truly is. I mean, Jesus identified the word of God as truth. Right? It is the definition of soundness. Because every other word spoken by men uh, is just from men. Right? But the word of God is, is sound. In so many other portions of the scriptures, uh, we're reminded over and over about the life-giving nature of the word of God. And we can't we really can't miss it if we're reading through the scriptures. We cannot miss it. We can't substitute it with something else. Um, Psalm, just a couple of examples here. Psalm 119, 129 through 130 says, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Now, does that mean only the simple can understand it? What does that mean if it says it imparts understanding to the simple? What's the broader meaning of that? I think if we look at it, that's the broader meaning is that it doesn't exclude the simple. It's not something so complex that only the wise in the world can understand. It, if the simple can understand it, everyone else can understand it. Okay? And that's, that's what's going on there. And several 
Verses later in that same chapter in Psalm 119, we read, Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. Why would we go anywhere else, right? Why would we want anything else other than this life-giving word that we have from God in the scriptures? So, but we do, right? We, we wander. We wander into other things. We listen to our own thoughts on things or the world's thoughts on things, and we drift away from the truth of God's word. And so we need to be reminded, just like Titus need to be reminded to, to, to stand firm on this in the word of God. Um, and so he reminds Titus that soundness is, is only found in God's word and that whatever you speak, teach, it has to line up with that. Whatever you teach the, the church, it has to line up with sound doctrine. And where do we find sound doctrine? We find it in the word of God. Um, he says in verse 2, for example. Okay, so he's, he's started out one, making this transition. And he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he gives, he's basically giving examples now of what accords with sound doctrine. Okay, these are not the doctrines he's talking about. These are the things that accord with sound doctrine. In verse 2, he says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And so here we have our first group of people and how their character uh, can line up with sound doctrine. This is how... That happens. These are the older men, and that could be anywhere from 50 and up. Um, Paul used this word, uh, presbutes, I think I pronounced it right, and it's translated this phrase as older men. In, an, uh, in another passage where Paul uses this about himself, he wrote it during a time when he was about 60 years old. So if he's referring to himself as this at that age, at least, it's at least 60. Um, but it's a form of the same word that Paul uses for elders. But in this context, it's simply referring to a man of older years. Okay? And what does he say that the character of older Christian men in the church should be? The first thing he talks about there is sober-minded. Okay, some of your translations might say temperate. Self-controlled. Well, that's down in the list a little farther. So, but I think we'll see that some of these things on this list, they're sort of, they do blend together a bit. There's, there's similarities in them. There's a connection between all of these. And I think we talked about it last week, that idea of self-control. Maybe it was last week or the week before, but how, how much self-control is tied to so much of uh, what we're commanded to do. And the difficulty that we find in doing many of the things we're commanded to do is that we have no self-control or we struggle with self-control. Um, so sober-minded, some may say temperate, um, and it is from a Greek verb meaning to be sober. Right? This carries the idea of the older man is uh, to be not only calm but level-headed. Okay, but, but as we think about this idea of sober, what are, what are some of the faculties that are lost when a person is drunk? Speech. Okay, mental capacity, vision, okay, their, their rationality, calmness, uh, things like dignity go away, <laughs> okay, um, good sense, clear thinking, these are some of the similar ways of saying some of those things, morality, sure, yeah, those are opposite of Christian character, right? To be that way or to lose those things or not possess those things um, is the opposite of Christian character. And the older Christian man is to be sober in his thinking and his understanding. His thinking and processing are clear and they're marked by loyalty to God's word. That's the idea here. It's not, I mean, we already have commands that, um, that we're not to be drunk, Right? So that's, that's already a command, but in particular, older Christian men are to be sober-minded. And it doesn't only mean 
or, or have the idea of an intoxicant, but it has the idea of clear thinking. Whether it's that thinking is disrupted by some intoxicating substance or by false teaching, by some, your, your understanding of scripture being diluted by, by false teaching. Okay, so he's to be sober-minded. Uh, the next one is dignified, you know, or venerable, or honorable. Um, Matthew Henry says, the aged person should be composed and stayed, grave in habit, speech, and behavior, gaudiness in dress, levity, and vanity in the behavior, how unbeseeming in their years. Right? It's, it's not fitting for the, the Christian, the older Christian man. And, and again, with a lot of these things, we'll see it's not just exclusive. It's not just exclusive that only older Christian men are to be sober-minded. That's not what's being said here, right? We all, sh- all Christians should be sober-minded. But this is very specific. He's writing very specifically about older Christian men. They are specifically called to this um, because of their role in the church and in the family. Um, and even in what is likely the oldest book in the Bible, we see what, what should come with age, right? In Job 12, 12, it says, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. See, those things are supposed to be connected to one another. They're a part of one another. Um, but often in our society, we don't look at it that way. We don't think of it that way. The next thing is self-controlled, um, sensible. The, this is one who's curbing his desires. Um, this person is self-disciplined. Okay, how many of us struggle with self-discipline in whatever area of our life? There's some area of our life where we struggle with self-discipline. Right? And the older, the older Christian man is to be self-controlled, he's to be self-disciplined. Uh, the fourth thing, he's to be sound in faith. We've talked about that word sound already. We talked about it last week. And, and here, sound in faith, this is not about the, the exercise of faith, right? It's not about how we, we live out that faith, but it's more about being sound in the faith. Okay? He says sound in faith is more like being sound in the faith. He's this this older Christian man that's being described is grounded in the adherence to the teaching of the Christian faith. He's unwavering in his trust of God's word as right and true. This is, this is what's being described here, this being sound in faith or sound in the faith. The next is sound in love, and this word is agape. Okay, what kind of love is agape? What is what is that kind of love marked by. You guys remember anything about agape? No? Well, it's, it's a sacrificial love, right? It's marked by sacrifice. It's, it's a love of the will. It's, it's a love of choice. It has, it has action to it. Um, it's, it's a love that's independent of the object deserving love or not. And if you remember, this is how Christ loved us. Right? We, are, we are not lovable, but he had this kind of love for us, a sacrificial love. And that's what this older Christian man is to be marked by. And then the sixth thing, the last thing on the list there is sound in steadfastness. Um, some of your translations might say patience or endurance or um, perseverance. And this word that you use means remaining under, right? And especially regarding trials and afflictions. And this person is not shaken by these things, by the trials of life, by the afflictions that would come into their lives. They're not shaken by it. In, they're not shaken in such a way that they they then walk away from the faith. They don't, they don't walk away from the Lord. It's not that they don't suffer or struggle, um, but, but ultimately they, they do not walk away from the Lord. They continue to trust 
in the Lord. How hard is that for us in life? When we experience our trials and suffering and those things, how hard is it to remain steadfast? It can be very difficult. Right? And depending on the trial, we see people walk away from the faith all the time because of trials in their life, because of difficulties in their life. Um, and I think the, the people that walk away, they are not sound in the faith. They're not, they're not, they haven't been taught what is according with, or, the, or they at least haven't believed what is according with sound doctrine. And therefore, they don't understand. They don't understand the place of suffering in the life of a Christian. And so they walk away thinking there's something wrong. It shouldn't be like that, right? But we know that's, that's not true. We know that there is suffering. There is pain in, in our lives, even as Christians. In our, in our culture, the older folks are often thought to be past their usefulness um, or, or diminishing in their roles in society. Even though people might not verbalize that, isn't that sometimes how older folks are treated? It is. And, and sometimes even older folks, I think, can begin to think this about themselves, that they're past their usefulness. And that really should not be true. It isn't true, and it really should not be true within the church. Christians especially should not think that way. Um, you see it in what Paul is instructing here. Right? If, they, if they no longer had, now speaking of this older Christian man, right? if, if they no longer had a function, it wouldn't matter if they had these character traits or not. They wouldn't be a part of anything. They wouldn't be relied upon for anything. But these older men should have these for a reason, and that reason is because they are a vital part of the life of the church. Just like as we look through all these things, older women have a vital part in the life of the church. Younger women, younger men, we have a vital part in the life of the church. What does the scripture say about the righteous aged person in Psalm 92, 14 and 15? It says this, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. You see, they're still bearing fruit in righteousness. And aside from actual loss of mental capacity or abilities, which we do, we do experience that sometimes. Some people experience that. Um, but aside from that, these people, this group, should be bearing fruit in increasing measure. Right, not decreasing measure. It's not like you get to a certain age and then, all right, you go sit back there now and don't talk. You got nothing to add. There, it's supposed to be an increasing measure coming from this group of people. And this is true of both, again, of both men and women. But he's particularly addressing older men here. In Proverbs 4.18 says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. What's the picture you have there in that verse? You're thinking of the path of the righteous, right? The, the righteous is, are those who are in Christ. Um, it says it's like the, dawn, the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. What does that mean, brighter and brighter until full day? group tonight <laughs> yeah for sure growing in their faith right there's there's a constant maturing in the christian life in the christian faith and it's until not until next week unless the lord comes next week but that's when it is until is when the lord comes right until full day they shine brighter and brighter they're not dimmer and dimmer okay and this is the path of of the righteous. This isn't even about age necessarily, but it's, it's telling us that the life of a Christian through that entirety of their life while they're here on earth is a path of, of righteousness that grows brighter and brighter, not dimmer and dimmer. We should be, as we are progressively sanctified, we are becoming more and more like Christ. 
until he comes. What's that? Charge of our batteries. Right. Any questions about that? Any of you feel like you should be, your role should be diminishing in the church? No. No. Right. That's right. Yeah, we should serve the Lord until the day we die, that's for sure. Now, there are people who, serving the Lord doesn't even necessarily mean you have to be able to physically go somewhere or something like that. I mean, you could go to visit somebody in the hospital, a, a brother or sister in the hospital, and they could be just as encouraging of you while you're there as they speak about the Word of God, and, and they can have an effect on you. Here you are going to visit them, and they're in their point of suffering, whatever it might be, and then they're blessing you. They're encouraging you with the Word of God. Um, I think we've all known people like that, that we think we're going to help them, and we leave going, wow, <laughs> I, I am really blessed by that, by that person, right? So we should not be thinking that as we get older, our, our role in the church diminishes. We don't find that anywhere in the scripture. And so we should be encouraging our older folks in the church to continue to play a vital role, to continue to play a role in, in discipleship, um, in, in training younger folks in the word of God and in righteous living, and we should be not only doing that by teaching the word of God, but by living it as an example. And perhaps you have people in your life that you know like that, that have been a, an example to you in their life. Well, that's something we should all strive to be, be continually doing in our lives. Um, what about the next group of people? Let's look at what older Christian women should be like. And again, this should be in increasing measure, not decreasing. So verses 3 through 5, let's look at our text there in Titus 2, 3 through 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, we should, uh, we should notice here that the instruction for older women and younger women is mixed in these verses. And what I mean is that verse 3 tells us what older women should be like, and then verse 4 tells us what younger women should be like. But the qualities in verse 4 are not restricted to younger women. Okay, the implication is that those qualities are also possessed by the older women. Otherwise, how, how would the older women teach them to the younger women? Right? So it's not, it's not two separate lists. They really are mixed. Um, and these qualities are not just, again, they're not just taught by the older women in word, but in deed or by example from their own lives. You'll no doubt notice that the list for older women is very long. Okay, <laughs> some of these, some of these are mentioned together in the text, but when we look at them as individual things, here there are eleven of them. And so, I, I mean, the list was what six for the older men. Um, so let's let's look at these. Starting in verse three, older women are to be reverent in behavior. And the idea here is that they are to be, they are to be holy, they are to be set apart to God in the way that they live. And again, this doesn't mean Christian men aren't to be that. Sure they are. But this is specifically addressed to older Christian women. The idea here is that they are to be holy. Their, their lives are to be set apart, marked for God in the way they live their lives. Their lives are are suitable, they're, they're fitting. The way they live is fitting for those who profess faith in Christ. That's how they're, they're to be reverent in behavior. Okay, they're not to be slanderers. These are, I don't know, some of your translations might say malicious gossips or false accusers. And this is the first of two 
negatives here in this. Okay, they're not to they are not to be malicious gossips. That sounds a lot worse than slanderers, doesn't it? Malicious gossips, but that gives sort of a picture of the graveness of this. That's not how they're to be. They're not to come between others. And I think this is more of a temptation for women than for men because we all know women can be much harsher in word and verbal manipulation, whereas men are much more apt to be violent, physically violent. Now, that, that's, this is in general, right? So don't think I'm saying it's only like this. Okay, but that's, I mean, you can see it in young girls, and uh, I've raised, my wife and I have raised four girls. We can see that girls can be very, choose my words wisely, very harsh in their words. Okay, uh, They know just what to say, right? Whereas guys are more like just, I'm going to punch you in the face. Okay, so uh, there's a difference there. Okay, so there, there are not to be this. There are not to be this way. Slandering, gossiping, those kinds of things. That is not fitting for the older Christian woman. Um, they are not to be slaves to much wine. It's another way of saying that. What's that? Temperate, okay. Excessive drinking, what? What about that word, slave, the slaves, much wine? What does that give you this picture of? Addiction, right? Bondage. They're, they're in bondage to this. They're, I mean, the Bible will call it being a drunkard. All right? They're, they're enslaved to it, and they're not to be that. These are those two negatives, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. And it was a problem back in the New Testament days. It was a problem on the island of Crete. Just like it was a problem everywhere else, and it's a problem today. Um, and again, it's not just women who are enslaved to much wine. That's, that's anybody who, who does that. The fourth thing there is they are to teach what is good to the young women. They are to teach what is good. Now we're back to the positive things here. Teaching what is good. Now what is the, what is the church answer to the question, what is good to teach? Sound doctrine, right? Let's, yeah, absolutely, right? Everything God commands, what we find in the scriptures for how we are to live as Christians, that is teaching what is good. There are things that pertain to women, though. There are things that pertain to women and how they're to interact with their husbands, how they're to interact with their children. Um, and that would be included in this. That, and included in this is the idea that <coughs> women have a connection with women. Right? Just like men have a connection with men. Men want to go on the fishing trip. Men want to go hunting together or golfing. Even though they don't talk about anything, they're bonding. Right? When women go and they do something, they're, they're talking the whole time. Right? You know, so, but, th but there's this bond. There's a bond between women and other women and men and other men. But in here in particular, there is or should be a bond between older Christian women and younger Christian women. There, there should be a bond there. Not a putting out to pasture of the older Christian woman so that younger women only minister to younger women. Right? They need the age, the wisdom, the experience of the older women. And so those older women are to teach what is good. They are to teach what is sound doctrine. They are to teach what accords with that. And then you can get he gets a little more specific here in, in, in that. And what are those things that this older Christian woman can teach this younger Christian woman. Well, love your husbands. You can teach them to love their husbands. This is not, this word here is not agape. And it doesn't mean that older Christian women are exempt from the command to agape love people, right? They're not exempt from that. But here it's not that word. Uh, this is, <coughs> it's, a different word, and it has more to do specifically with the, the relationship between the woman and her husband. There's a, a fondness in this relationship in an ongoing sense. There's a devotion, a friendship, a companionship there. This is the kind of love that it's talking about. Um, and, and the next thing is love their children. And it's really in the same sense as above, but 
it's a slightly different word, and it is specific to children. They are specifically told to love their children in this way. Does that mean men aren't supposed to love their children? No. No, but this is a command to women. And, but why, why would women need to be commanded to specifically love their children? Have you ever met any children? They're difficult, difficult to love, right? I mean, there is a, a natural love from, from a mother to their children, no matter what, right? But that doesn't mean that the kids don't get on your last nerve every day. Okay, there, there's a difficulty to it, and even so, the command is that they would love their children, right? And even through all of that, they would continue to love their children. It's not easy, so it's commanded. It's like all the commands in Scripture, we're commanded to do things because we don't do them. We, it's not our natural inclination to do certain things. It's not our natural inclination to be patient. We're commanded to be patient. Uh, it's something we have to be disciplined in. Um, They're to be self-controlled. We're back to that word again. Okay, same kind of thing, self-controlled. And whatever it is that affects uh, the older Christian woman in her life, she is to be self-controlled. Whatever comes at her, her responses are to be self-controlled. There is to be, a, again, a uh, self-discipline to her life. She is to be, the next one, she is to be pure. Okay, and this is, this is about moral purity, sexual purity. It's about marital faithfulness. Okay, and again, it doesn't mean that men aren't commanded to be faithful to their wives. That's not what's being said here, but this is a specific command for women uh, to be pure. To be working at home is the next one. I waited for the gasp. There was a gasp. Uh, and this is not a restriction on women like the world would have us believe. Right? The, what would the world have us believe about what the Bible says about this? They would look at it more like this is a degrading of women or, or something like that. And according to one commentator, he said this does not suggest that the woman's home is a prison where she must be kept. The idea is that she is caring for the home and the wise husband allows his wife to manage the affairs of the household for this is her ministry. Does that sound like prison? Does that sound like a, a lowly duty? No, it is not. Uh, and we would be wise to understand how important this role is in the family. We live in a time when families are not intact even. Right? And, and this is almost a concept that we've forgotten in a way. Um, and these, these Christian women in New Testament times, they would do these things. They would teach the younger women. They would encourage the younger women in these things, in, in doing these things in the Lord. They, they also ministered to each other and ministered in the church. Um, they ministered to single women, to widowed women. They visited the sick and those in prison. Well, that means they had to leave their home, right? Uh, they provided hospitality to Christian travelers, those in ministry. When they would go, you know, the apostles, they would go from place to place. They'd go into these homes. There, there's a vital role that these women played in the lives of Christians who were bringing the gospel and traveling around bringing the gospel. Some of them even traveled and brought the gospel with them. Um, they would be in places and cities where they're sort of overrun with pagan worship. And these Christian women would go around and they would be searching for abandoned babies. Because you know, people would just abandon their newborns. They're unwanted. And they would go and, and find these babies and save them and have part in placing them in homes where they can be cared for and loved. These are not little things. These are not, um, you know, degrading types of roles or jobs. That's not what is being taught in the scripture about Christian women. This is more of the idea of working at home, taking care of the home. It doesn't mean they can never leave home. It doesn't even mean they can't be out 
buying and selling, but their primary ministry is their family, their husband, their children. Again, it doesn't mean they can never go and work outside the home, but if if the Christian woman is working outside of her home to the neglect of her home, to the neglect of her children, and her primary responsibility there, then that would be wrong. So, but this is not what the world thinks. Why does the world hate the biblical teaching about women so much? Why is it so offensive to them, and even to many Christians? Why, why is that? Pride, what else? Oh, yeah, we, we would hear phrases like gender equality, right? Yeah, that's another one. There you go. I mean, the evil one is here to destroy us, for sure. And, and through the worldly thinking, those ideas come in, and, and as Christians begin to adopt a secular worldview about gender roles, we abandon what God has said, and we're more and more okay with um, a lot of the things that are happening in our culture in the degrading of the family. And we can, it's not that women are to blame, it's, it's men and women. If this is happening in Christian homes, it's men and women who are at fault in that. Um, but it is important. The family is important. This is an important role. Perhaps no more important role than the role of a godly wife and mother in the home. And that doesn't diminish women who have no children, right, or who are single. It's not a diminishing of that either. Um, there are many older Christian women who have never had children who greatly minister to younger women, greatly minister to other children like they were their own, and they, they have special bonds with them. There is an important role there. So um, it is not to say that someone who is single or who has no children is somehow lesser than, but God has, if, if a woman is single, just like if a man is single, well, in a Christian way of thinking, we have now more time to serve the Lord. I, I don't have another focus in my life. A husband I have to care for, or kids I have to care for. Or the husband doesn't have to say, I have a wife and kids to care for and provide for. It's now if you're single and you have no kids, you, there is a freedom in that. There's a freedom to serve the Lord. And, and then maybe someday they'll be married. Maybe someday they'll have kids, or maybe they never will. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a different, God has a different really not a different role. I mean, we're all to be serving the Lord, but you can do it in a different capacity if you're single than you can if you're married. Right. Yeah, I mean, we talk about retirement. It's, I mean, retirement's not even a biblical concept, right? We've sort of created that where we work for a certain amount of time and then we retire and then we go sit on the golf course or, you know, grow strawberries or something. And that's fine. Not that golfing is bad or growing strawberries is bad, but our mindset as Christians should always be, I may have retired from my career, now I just have more time to serve the Lord. That's what I'm here to do. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to be a part of the church. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, you're going to deal with that one later. Yeah, so... Yeah, our mindset needs to be that we don't, we don't retire from life. We don't retire from our calling as Christians, which is to go and make disciples, right? We, that is a never-ending role until you can't move or speak or something anymore. Uh, that, is, that is for all of us to be doing. But the world hates this. The world cannot stand this. The, Christian, the older Christian woman is to be kind. She's to be submissive. They are to be submissive to their own husbands. Okay, this is another, um, kind of goes along with this other portion that we've been looking at. This is hated by the world and, and oftentimes hated by even Christian women who don't understand the meaning of this. This is not about prison or that a, that a woman is lesser than a man. Uh, that is not what's being said. The scripture tells us otherwise um, in terms of salvation. You know, the scripture tells us that there is no male or female, right? We are all co-heirs with Christ, um, but we have different roles. We certainly have different roles that God has given us, and God has placed the husband as the head of the household, 
Um, the wife is to be submissive to her husband. That doesn't mean she's a doormat getting stepped on, um, but that she would be his helper. She would be his helpmate. And a husband is wise to listen to his wife's counsel, his godly wife who would counsel him and, and help him uh, with decision-making. When this is working and functioning properly in the Christian home, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. And the scripture tells us that God gave us, our wives, as helpers. Right? So this is not about being a doormat or something like that. If someone's teaching that, that's wrong. If someone's believing that, it's wrong. Um, but we should understand that this is a God-given role. And, and speaking here, the older women would be teaching the younger women. And back in those days, most younger women were married. You know, um, it's not like today, um, but there was a there was a protection to it. Um, and so this is how how the older women would be teaching these younger women. <coughs> and it doesn't even mean that the older woman can't teach a younger woman who's not married. Maybe she will be married someday. And the role of this older woman in her life is to teach her these things even before she's married. When the day comes that she gets married, she's been taught. Right. She's been shown by example by this older Christian woman. And we're sort of out of time for this tonight, but, uh, but, but next time we'll pick it up and we'll, we'll pick it up with the, um, how this rolls into more in terms of the, um, the younger men and what they're to be taught. And we'll see, you, maybe you've already noticed that the list for the younger men is, has one thing on it. <laughs> Don't make assumptions about that. Okay, it's not, it might, might not be what you think. doesn't mean that, well, these older Christian women are so messed up, they have to have 11 things. But these younger men, they only need one thing, right? So it's not about that. But we'll, we'll pick that up next time uh, when, we, when we continue again. Any, any questions before we close? Then we'll have a time to have questions afterwards, too. Okay. All right, well, let's close in a word of prayer for tonight. And Father in heaven, thank you again. For your word, and thank you for this uh, reminder of the character of older Christian men and older Christian women and what we're to be doing, um, not only within homes, but within the church. Help us, Lord, to see your word and, and the roles that you have for us as men and women. Um, help us to see them as glorious, as, as roles that honor you and bring glory to you and point others to you. Lord, may we not bring contempt on the name of Christ by the way we live our lives. Um, I pray that we would live godly examples, Lord. We'd be following the instructions of Scripture, and we thank you for them. And again, thank you for helping us um, as you sanctify us. Make us more like Christ. Um, we praise you for it and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.